And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to our show today. It's a pretty fun show for today, I think. Yeah, I think so too. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing good. Uh, Cleaned the apartment. Nice. Did laundry. Nice. Yeah, doing pretty good. Feeling pretty productive. Nice. What about you? I'm also feeling good and productive today. Nice. High five. All right. Yeah. Uh, To continue that theme of productivity, what are we watching today? So today's film is called The Walking Dead. Not, no. No, not zombies. Right. No relation at all to the extremely popular image comic book series and AMC television series created by Robert Kirkman called The Walking Dead, or any of its other media juggernaut spinoffs. Totally different thing from 1936. Because of how big the, like, even just the AMC TV show The Walking Dead is, I do just want to point out that at this point in the horror genre, zombies are more well-known as the Haitian zombies that we talk about in White Zombie in particular. They're exclusively known as that. There's really no other kind of zombie other than that kind of Haitian voodoo zombie. Yeah. If you want to talk about, like, the dead rising again, I guess you could maybe do Frankenstein. The more common term folklorically for what we now call zombies would be a ghoul, an undead that feasts on... The living. Right. Slash other dead. Right. Regardless, The Walking Dead, this movie, Mm -hmm. isn't really about anything we would consider today a zombie other than in that connection of it's about an undead person. This movie is uh, from Warner Brothers, and it's, it's been a while since we've seen a Warner Brothers horror movie. I mean, the last ones we saw were pretty... Exciting! It was Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, part of the reason those movies were exciting and fun, even if they didn't rank very high on the list, is because of the Technicolor aspect. Yes. Is that kind of continued here? No, this is a black and white film. Okay, because like, they made those two Technicolor movies because they needed to like fulfill a contract obligation. Yeah. I mean, by 1936, where we're in now, Disney's exclusivity contract with Three-Tone Technicolor has ended. However, Three-Tone Technicolor was super expensive and was something you only really wanted to use on prestige pictures, costume dramas, historical fantasy, that kind of stuff. Not horror movies. Exactly. So, in our earlier Warner Brothers episodes, uh, one of the things that we sort of talked about was the idea that the classic Golden Age Hollywood studios had personalities in the sense that while all the studios made all kinds of movies, there were certain movies that each studio kind of had as a specialty. Mm -hmm. Um, So MGM really went for glamour and escapism, and Paramount really went for comedies, uh, romantic comedies, sexy comedies, screwball comedies. And you had, you know, obviously Universal's specialty is horror, And uh, do you remember sort of what we talked about Warner Brothers sort of specializing in? Crime films, I guess, Um, but definitely like a fast-talking reporter Mm -hmm. or detective vibe. Like, not quite film noir, but that, like, grittiness of the city. Yeah, and those movies certainly evolve into film noir. Classically speaking, the film noir genre is regarded to really coalesce You know, the first movie we can really say this is unambiguously film noir is 1941's The Maltese Falcon, which is a Warner Brothers film. But we're five years before that. For sure. But yeah, you're you're totally on on the mark with that. Warner Brothers movies um, tended towards the gritty, the urban. Um, They were crime dramas or they were social dramas about social ills of the time. And they often starred fast-talking detectives or fast-talking journalists or fast-talking crime bosses, 
or <laughs> fast-talking, down-on-their-luck women. Yeah. That was generally the deal. Wise guys. They starred wise guys. Wise guys, eh? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, these were movies that talked about a sp- particularly urban social problems. Corruption, right? In, in Warner Brothers movies, the police were not always on the up and up. Uh, judges and politicians could be bribed and be under the control of, you know, organized crime. There would be, you know, all these sort of elements of salacious um, sex scandals or other sort of implied uh, innuendos, uh, all kinds of stuff going on uh, in the seedier underbelly of the city. So now it's 1936. And the code is in full effect. You got it. So how are they doing? Not great. Yeah. Um, So Warner Brothers was having a lot of trouble post-code. Warner's and Paramount were the two studios that really got hit the worst with the code. One of the problems Warner Brothers was having is in 1935, they went to court over some antitrust issues due to there was a certain territory where they owned every theater. So that was a monopoly and that was a problem. And uh, Warner's was forced to sell all their theaters uh, in that area, and the cost of the lawsuits um, and everything um, made Warner Brothers suffer a severe financial loss in 1935, which wasn't great since obviously the code was also cutting in, you know, starting that year with the kind of movies they could make. Mm -hmm. So they had to find ways to cope if they wanted to keep doing those kinds of films. Mm -hmm. Um, And the code got Warner Brothers into a ton of trouble for a lot of issues, um, you know, obviously these crime dramas, for sure. The other thing that Warner's got in trouble with with the code repeatedly during the late 30s was making anti-Nazi movies. Right, because you can't... Can't disparage foreign ethnicities. Yeah. Or mock, like, other countries or whatever. Everyone's equal. Exactly. Everyone's fine. Right. Don't make fun of others. Exactly. Even if they deserve it. Right, so... Hollywood didn't really go all out with making anti-Nazi movies until the U.S. joined the war. But Warner Brothers was doing it way earlier than that. Um, Part of the reason for this is that the Warner Brothers were Jewish and not a big fan of Nazis. But the fact of the matter is, is like, with the exception of maybe RKO, most of the studios were owned by Jewish families. Mm. The thing that really put the fire in Jack Warner's belly in terms of going after the Nazis was that uh, Philip Kaufman, the German sales head for Warner Brothers, was murdered by the Nazis in 1936. Oh. Because he was Jewish. Yeah. So he was just, like, killed in the street by some Nazis. Like, in the States? No, in Germany. He was the German sales head, so he was responsible for selling Warner Brothers films overseas in Germany. Okay, that that makes a bit more sense. But the code would go after them for that as well, and so this was causing all kinds of problems for them. Um, one of the ways that Warner's dealt with this was their writers became particularly adept at a certain kind of, um, well, they mastered the art of coding their dialogue, uh, which is to say how to write scripts in a way to get certain characters and themes past Joseph Breen. You know, how do you write a gay character without him being explicitly gay? How do you talk about corruption without being explicit about it? How do you talk Mm. about sex without being explicit about it, right? How do you kind of wink, wink, and nudge, nudge in all these things? And Warners became very adept at doing this. And it's something that you kind of have to learn about if you're going to watch movies like The Maltese Falcon or Casablanca, because there's a lot of stuff that to audiences of the time would have been clear because they would have understood and been versed in these codes in a way that we aren't today. So we don't really notice or think about them when we're watching these movies. I always wondered, if people are so well-versed in these codes, how did they get past the the office itself? Well, not everyone when I say people, right? But, like, I think even today there are certain sort of um, shibboleths like this that you see in modern culture, where you might watch something and go, oh, I know this character's supposed to be bisexual or something based on the way they've shot this scene. The lighting. The Based on the lighting. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's nothing explicit about it. You know, you still get this kind of thing from time to time, right? Where 
things have to be a little bit under the radar. And so the, the thing about it is people in the know know the codes. People who don't, don't, and you have to write your script so that it works both ways. Okay, and Warner Brothers was a studio that was kind of leading the charge with that. Yeah, mostly because if they wanted to keep making the kinds of movies they were used to making and that they had built their stars around, right? They had they had picked their talent of who they contracted because they were well-suited to those kinds of movies. So if they wanted to keep doing that, they had to learn how to adapt. Mm-hmm. Now, that wasn't the only strategy Warner Brothers had for dealing with the code. The other thing they started to do was pivot to other genres. So Warner started doing historical fiction, melodramas, literary adaptations. Though even in these, they would sneak in social commentary. For example, when Warner Brothers does a swashbuckler film, they do Robin Hood so they can talk about the way that the rich exploit the poor. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, is because what the code wanted was moralized and idealized films, Warner's was losing ground. They were losing money, you know, to studios like MGM that were better suited to that kind of content. And that's what really made them open and willing to trying other genres. It's weird that they would try out horror, though, because it's on its way out. Right. Not only is it going down in terms of frequency because of the code, but it's also going down in popularity in terms of box office Mm -hmm. money. Yeah, for sure. I think when you are trying everything and trying to find what can be a new identity for your studio and what can work, you know, there's maybe a willingness to say, well, maybe we can do this in a way that's been eluding Universal or MGM, right? Because maybe the reason why Universal's failing is because they are used to making horror the old way, and maybe there's a new way that it can be done that we can try. Mm-hmm. Okay. The story for The Walking Dead originated with um, studio contract screenwriters Ewart Adamson and Joseph Fields, and it was picked up for production by studio contract producer Hal Wallace. Uh, And Hal Wallace produced films like Little Caesar, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Dark Victory, The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, The Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, The Fountainhead, Beckett, and True Grit. Among many others. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so Wallace, you know, was, was a top-notch producer. And he set Adamson to work on a first draft for the screenplay and hired Michael Curtiz to direct. Hiring Curtiz made a lot of sense uh, because he was the director who'd helmed Warner's two earlier horror efforts, uh, Dr. X and Mystery at the Wax Museum. Yeah. So if you want to know more about Curtiz's early life, uh, you can check out our Dr. X episode. Uh, Curtiz also happened to just be one of Wallace's favorite directors to work with in general. They collaborated together on some of their most successful films. Casablanca. Exactly. Um, So since we last saw Michael Curtiz three years ago, uh, he has directed 14 films. Dang. Uh, the most important of which would be the movie he directed right before this one, which was Captain Blood, starring Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, and Basil Rathbone. So, of course, the success of Captain Blood would lead to The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938, which basically has the exact same cast but was done in color, Mm -hmm. um, as well as many other swashbuckler movies. So The Walking Dead is the last film that we're going to be seeing from Michael Curtiz. But uh, aside from Robin Hood, the other major films in his future include uh, the aforementioned Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, the aforementioned Casablanca, as well as Mildred Pierce and White Christmas. I feel like there should be a double feature of White Christmas and then Black Christmas. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, um, the lead role of John Ellman, the titular Walking Dead in this movie, uh, would go to Boris Karloff, who had just come off of doing The Invisible Ray for Universal, and was probably glad to get another major studio film. Mm -hmm. 
definitely. Karloff um, accepted the role, but he felt that the character as written was too close to Frankenstein's monster. You know, partially in the he's brought back to life by a scientist aspect, but also the fact that in the first draft of the script, the character, once he's revived, doesn't speak. Yeah, we kind of criticized the ghoul for doing that, too. Exactly. Um, So, uh, Hal Wallace brought on three more writers... Peter Milne, Robert Andrews, and Lily Hayward to rewrite the script to Karloff's satisfaction. Oh, that's cool. That he had enough cachet to do that? Yeah, they they wanted Karloff happy. I think this was maybe Karloff's second film with Warner Brothers in his whole career at this point. Uh, He'd had a very minor role, I think maybe even pre-Frankenstein, in 1931's The Mad Genius, uh, which had been directed by Michael Curtiz. Um, I guess Curtiz cast him by accident because he wanted a Russian to play a certain role and thought Karloff was Russian based on his name. Yeah, well, that's why he chose that name. And then I guess he didn't fire Karloff because Karloff was so desperate to keep the part once he had gotten hired because, again, this was pre-Frankenstein when his career was really not doing well. So co-starring with Karloff uh, in this film are um, Ricardo Cortez, Edmund Gwen. And Marguerite Churchill. Related to Winston? No. Okay. So Ricardo Cortez, uh, he was born Jacob Krantz to a Jewish family in New York in 1900, and he was renamed by studio executives in the 1920s to cash in on the trend of Latin lovers like Rudolph (laughs) Valentino. Sure. So as far as studio propaganda was concerned, he was Spanish. Not. Jewish. Uh, today, Cortez is probably best known as the original Sam Spade in the pre-code version of the Maltese Falcon. Uh, he also played Perry Mason in one of the six Perry Mason films from Warner Brothers in the 1930s. Oh, cool. Edmund Gwen was an acclaimed English stage actor, born in 1877 and had been performing as an actor since 1895. His film career began in 1916, and he moved to Hollywood permanently in 1940 after his home in London was destroyed by the Luftwaffe. Uh, Modern audiences know Gwen best as Chris Kringle in the original 1947 version of Miracle on 34th Street, Um, but he also appeared in four films for Alfred Hitchcock, The Skin Game, Waltzes from Vienna, Foreign Correspondent, and The Trouble with Harry. Finally, uh, Marguerite Churchill, who's the lead actress in this film, was 25 when she made this movie. Um, She had started acting on Broadway at age 16 and was signed to Fox at age 19. Her big break was as the leading lady in 1930's The Big Trail, opposite John Wayne in his first leading role. Uh, She appeared primarily as romantic leads and retired from acting in 1952 after 28 films. Only 28? Yeah. Okay. Like, we've we've seen some people do 28 films in a year, you know, (laughs) so that's why I'm surprised. Yeah, she acted sort of sporadically during the 40s after she got married and she was raising kids. Yeah. Okay. Cinematography for The Walking Dead was the work of acclaimed cinematographer Hal Moore. Born in 1894, Moore shot his first film at age 19 and moved to Hollywood in 1915. Uh, He actually shot Roland West's The Monster back in 1925. (laughs) Uh, And then significantly, he was the cinematographer for The Jazz Singer in 1927. Oh, that's the first talkie. That's right. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's the first sync sound motion picture. Yeah. Um, Moore won an Oscar for Best Cinematography for his work on 1935's A Midsummer Night's Dream, becoming the only person to win a competitive Oscar without being nominated as the result of a successful write-in campaign during the voting (laughs) process. Cool. His next film after Midsummer Night's Dream would be Captain Blood with Michael Curtiz, followed immediately by The Walking Dead. Because you've kind of set this film up as the follow-up to the director and cinematographer's big success. Mm-hmm. Um, was this movie successful? Like, did Warner Brothers find that kind of new, unique horror yes formula? And, yes and no. Okay. This is, I will say, the thing I love about this movie personally is 
the way it does blend the Warner style of doing things with the horror genre. I really love it. And in terms of was the movie successful, I guess the answer is yes and no. Okay. So The Walking Dead had a budget of $214,000, which puts it maybe a little less than something like The Invisible Ray, but, you know, maybe a little bit more than a lot of the other sort of (laughs) B-movies we've been seeing lately. Sure. Um, It premiered on February 29th, 1936, and would go on to gross $300,000. So it was financially successful. Critics were less kind, Mm. however. Um, They panned the movie, calling it trite and of limited satisfaction. Of limited satisfaction. Yeah, it was generally regarded that while the, the, the director and the cast gave it their all, the script was really stupid and let down everybody, and that Karloff was, like, let down by the role. That, like, it, it was... That he, he, he deserved better was the, the critical consensus around this movie. Okay. Yeah. So how are we watching this film? Well, uh, today you can find The Walking Dead on the Karloff and Lugosi Horror Classics DVD set from Warner Home Video. Um, it's not streaming anywhere, likely due to the prominence of a certain zombie TV show. Yeah, you'd think that it would be, like, widely available in the hopes that someone would get the two confused. Do the grandma mistake? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if maybe there's a problem with, because of, like, because you can get it on DVD, that's fine, but you can't find it on, you know, YouTube or, or... Microsoft Video or iTunes or anywhere like that. And I'm curious if maybe that's because in the internet era, your your search engine results are so important that, like, a property like The Walking Dead, you know, might have some, some rights in that regard that you'd be infringing upon by putting up something of the same title. I don't oh. really know. It's not something I've ever really thought about before. But, yeah, you can't find this movie online. So... I don't know. Well, we're lucky that we found the DVD at the Calgary Comic Expo last week. Yes, right in time for this episode. Yeah. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, find yourself a copy. Um, Otherwise, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching The Walking Dead from 1936. See you on the other side, everybody. Every town in every part of the world has one street where things out of the ordinary happen. In the town of Mayfield Falls, that street is Darkside Drive. Darkside Drive Drive is a live horror anthology series about the hidden secrets of disturbing characters. After a successful run of two seasons on CJSW Radio in Calgary, Canada, All 18 episodes are now available online at Apple Podcasts or at www.darksidedrive.com. Creators Don Roth and Justin Guild, along with the talented ensemble of the Calgary Radio Playhouse, invite you to explore a new generation of radio drama as you make your way down the terrifying length of Darkside Drive. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Walking Dead from 1936, directed by Michael Curtiz. And Ben and I very much enjoyed this. Yeah, this movie fucking rules, Sarah. It's so fun. It's, uh, it's rad as hell. Yeah, it's great. It's metal as fuck. Sure. I mean, the music we hear is classical, so... Let's, let's, uh, let's go through the plot and, uh... Yeah, and then we'll, we, can, we can chat about it. So despite the threats that are made against him, Judge Shaw sentences a criminal to prison, a criminal who is known to be affiliated with a crime ring of racketeers. To get revenge on the judge, the four ringleaders, Nolan, who also happens to be a lawyer, Blackstone, Merritt, and Loader, conspire to have Hitman Trigger take him out and pin the murder 
on a John Elman, who is Karloff. Um, and I also just feel like, Mom, what were you thinking, calling your kid Trigger? Of course he's going to grow up to be a hitman. I don't think it's his Christian name, Sarah. Hmm. John Elman has been out of prison for two weeks after Shaw sentenced him to ten years in prison. Uh, also, at this point, we get introduced to Dr. Beaumont and his two lab assistants, Jimmy and Nancy, who are in love and can't wait to get married. While driving towards uh, either to or from a date, Jimmy and Nancy witness Judge Shaw's dead body being put into a car, and thus they can prove Elman's innocence. Uh, but they're nervous about coming forward because this whole thing is pretty set up. You know, there's, there's a fishy smell to all of this. Elman is convicted of Judge Shaw's murder, with no help from Nolan, who is acting from his lawyer. Would help to be convicted? Because it's a setup. And Elman sentenced to execution by electrocution. At this point in the film, we know Elman's a musician. Um, you know, we see him playing the piano a little bit. Um, and for his last request, he asks for his favorite song to be played during the execution. Jimmy and Nancy decide to come forward at basically the 11th hour, but unfortunately they are too late. Elman has been executed. But wait! Dr. Beaumont's experiments with keeping hearts and other organs alive in test tubes naturally will work to bring Elman back to life. Mm-hmm. And he succeeds. Um, but Elman doesn't remember anything from before the execution. Yeah. Beaumont does notice this blood clot in the back of Elman's brain, and he says that this is what's keeping him from remembering anything from being dead or anything like that. Uh, otherwise, he, it's kind of a tabula rasa, blank slate type of deal. Until Elman starts to play the piano during his recovery. Um, and it's, it's a credit to Karloff's acting the way that, you know, he plays the piano and you can see in the look of, in his eyes and of his facial expression that he either learns or gains access to some kind of knowledge. Uh, and it seems to be a kind of omnipotent knowledge because he learns about him being framed and who's responsible for essentially his death. He begins to track down... Uh, these people, his own murderers, and what's neat is when a person dies, Karloff slash Elman kind of blinks and goes back to Elman's original facial expression as if he was in a trance. Mm -hmm. He wasn't fully aware of what was going on. What's also kind of neat is he never actually kills anyone. Um, it's almost like his presence invokes enough guilt that the person either runs off and accidentally gets squished by a train, or uh, spooks someone so much that he has a heart attack and falls out a window. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how two of the four people die, and finally only Nolan and Loder are left. Elman goes to the cemetery as part of one of these trances, um, claiming that he belongs here, and Nancy actually tracks him down. Um, now, this is near the, the climax of the film, and it's a big stormy, rainy night. Nancy runs off from where she found Elman in the cemetery to call the doctor to, you know, bring them here to Elman and, and you know, kind of talk him off the ledge a little bit. What Nancy doesn't know is that she was followed to the cemetery by Nolan and Loder, who sneak up and shoot Elman several times, in fact, as if he's this truly unrelenting force, um, and then they drive off. Nancy gets a hold of Beaumont, and he and Jimmy and the DA, you know, who's just been hanging out helping us piece together the plot a little bit, um, they drive over to help Elman, but unfortunately it's too late. Uh, what is kind of strange is some of the bullets that hit Elman. One of them actually hit the back of his skull and removed the blood clot. Um, so Elman's going to die. But he now has that full access to knowledge and Beaumont like questioning him about it because the scientist needs to know. Elman starts to tell him about death and about a jealous god. Yeah, he quotes Deuteronomy. Yeah. Um, 
the uh, the passage about um, God is a jealous God. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Throughout the sequence, we keep intercutting between Elman dying and Nolan and Loder driving a little crazily on these roads, and they get into a car accident, and the car explodes. Uh, and that's when, you know, light hits Omen's face, and he dies. Um, and kind of the last line of the film itself is what Ben was saying, the quote from Deuteronomy, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God. Mm-hmm. The end. It's It's a really good movie, Sarah. It is. It's... It's so good. It's shot so well. And it's so... If you watch Batman the Animated Series at all, you would love this movie because so much of the aesthetic is taken and put into Batman. Yeah, I mean, that you know that whole animated series was really drawing from this era of Warner film, but this movie in particular really feels like a live-action episode. I mean, the best way to describe it almost is it's like Mask of the Phantasm the movie without Batman in it. It's this really perfect blend of the Warner aesthetic that we've been talking about and the horror genre. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think of how they're going to mix those two things together and they really go for it, you know? Yeah, the way that Elman is kind of shown through shadow, you know, it really reminds me of when you see just the silhouette of Batman's shadow mm-hmm. falling over a criminal's back or something. You're sure. like, dude's fucked. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so good. The thing that's sort of, you know, amazing about it is, you know, this movie starts and it's got, you know, these racketeers and a crooked lawyer and, like, is there one judge in this town who's, you know, noble enough to put these crooks away and then they kill that judge and they frame this guy and there's like a crusading DA and like all this kind of stuff. And there's nothing really in like the first half of this movie that tells you this is going to turn weird. Other than like there's one scene in like Dr. Beaumont's office that's like Nancy and Jimmy talking about how they're going to get married and you're like, oh, that's weird. Like, why are we getting introduced to these scientist people? And then it's like, okay, well, they're the ones who saw the murder, and they're, the, like, the only witnesses who can step forward and blah, blah, blah. So you're like, okay, that's why they're here. You still don't really have any clue. And then, like, he dies, and Beaumont's like, oh, I can bring him back to life because I'm a mad scientist. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> and then, like, boom, we're in, like, a lab with, like, fucking lightning generators and Tesla coils and bubbling flasks and Dutch angles everywhere and boom, he's brought back to life and he's got like a shock of white through his hair and you know, we go all shadowy and it's lightning and thunder and and supernatural horror for the rest of the movie and it's it's a really effective twist. Totally. And actually to kind of speak about the sequence when he's brought back to life I find it so unfortunate that Karloff is so associated with Frankenstein. Mm-hmm, because yeah. you, can't, you can't help but see parallels. Mm-hmm. And part of it, too, is Frankenstein is so iconic in what it adds to the horror genre, especially with a mad scientist and what that laboratory looks like, that like even if Curtiz is not meaning to invoke Frankenstein... Like, if you're using these tropes, like, those tropes are rooted, they have a root somewhere, so you can't help but invoke it. Yeah, it's it's very Frankenstein-esque, that sequence. You know, I mean, the, the doc even says he's alive after he wakes him up. And then he's like, he will live. Yeah. Like, he had to say the line, and then he's like, I'll put my own spin on it. Sure. I'm starting to think that one of my favorite techniques is, like, a movie that's normal and then turns horror halfway through. There's something about the contrast between this relatively real world that the movie starts in, that when the supernatural gets brought into it suddenly, it makes that supernatural feel more powerful. Like, you almost go through the same shock as the characters do. Yes, exactly. Like, it's, it's tough because, you know, when you watch um, Dracula, for instance... When Dracula comes to London and everyone's running around being like, oh, 
Like, how could this be? Vampires aren't real, blah, blah, blah. As an audience member, you're sitting there, you've been watching this movie, you've seen Dracula doing stuff for, like, a whole, like, third of the movie up to this point. So there's no... You're not there with the characters. Yeah. Um, it's, like, um, one of the reasons why I find the anime Berserk to be effective is the same shtick, where it's, like, a normal, oh. a normal, like, realistic, quote-unquote, medieval fantasy world or even just medieval world there's no like magic or anything weird and then the twist comes and all this supernatural stuff starts happening and it's really effective because you haven't been running around in a world with like elves and wizards and shit up to that point similar similar sort of thing here yeah what is interesting with this film is it's the perfect example of how German Expressionism pairs so well with both horror and film noir. Oh, that's a really interesting point, yeah. Yeah, like this film, honestly, like... So in the intro you said the first real film noir is kind of pointed to be the Maltese Falcon. Mm -hmm. But if you watch The Walking Dead, especially with that first half, Mm -hmm. you're like, this is film noir, what are you talking about? Oh yeah, for sure, like... I mean, when people talk about Maltese Falcon being the first, what they're really talking about is almost that Maltese Falcon is the end of the process of film noir developing, in sure. a way, right? Like, like all the elements have come to, you know, whether narrative or stylistic, have come together and here we go, and maybe at this point it's still just dating, but you're definitely right that, like, you know, if you sat someone down and, and showed them the first half of this movie, I think just... Yeah, you're totally right. They would just go, oh, this is film noir. Yeah. Kind of beginning with the shot where Elman's in jail. He's hoping that he can get a hold of the governor. Like, So it's the night of his execution. And the camera follows the shadow of the bars on the floor before panning up or tilting up. Tilting up. Whatever the term is, up to seeing him in this jail cell. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, that's film noir, Um, but this is a horror film. Mm -hmm. So that's why this feels like almost a passing of the baton. Yeah, there's definitely like a Venn diagram overlap happening here, for sure. Yeah, and I think what's interesting with this Venn diagram, this passing of the baton, is I feel like someone could make the argument that this film isn't horror, it's a thriller. Yeah, mm, yes. Yes? Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. But I, I still feel like it's a horror, and I have yes. reasons as to why, but I think someone could make a fairly good argument that it's a, a thriller. Yeah, I I think the the emphasis is in a bit of the wrong place for it to be a thriller, uh, but I see your point. Mm-hmm. Um, like a film noir thriller. Yes, yeah, yeah. For me, this is still horror, and it's definitely that punishment horror yes. subgenre that we first noted with Freaks. Um, because as much as we're like, yeah, he's getting the guys back, um, Elman himself takes no joy in the progress of revenge, mm-hmm. like crossing names off the list. Um, he almost seems like an ignorant puppet. He himself is an unrelenting force, um, which is like further emphasize with the fact that he's almost like an ignorant puppet. Um, and Nancy is really the key to it for me because she's in, she's the one who's endured and survived this horror. Like she felt the most strongly about like, no, we can't go to the police. Fuck. We waited too long and now he's dead. I feel so guilty about that. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to turn that guilt into like making like just being like the one who's really encouraging Elman to get better and get his life back, and now all of that has been dashed away. Like, once Elman comes back, he's not really a character in the traditional sense. Like, he's so psychologically different from an ordinary person that it's hard to say that, you know, the movie's following his point of view. The point of view really, a lot of the times, is from the point of view of the racketeers and his victims, and that's who we're seeing things from, and I think that's part of the reason why the emphasis feels more like horror, right? We're not watching a vigilante 
track down these dudes and figure out where they are and go after them systematically. He just kind of knows where they are, and we're seeing it from their point of view as this, like, unexplained, like, how did he even get in this room kind of guy shows up out of nowhere and offs them one by one. Yeah. It is a slasher film. Yeah, yeah. I think, so the thing that's brilliant here, in my opinion, is the way this movie has found a way to do horror, specifically this type of horror, within code boundaries. Yeah. Because, you know, some the, the two big things, uh, the three big things in this movie that theoretically violate the code, this movie finds a very clever way to get around. So the first one is that, like, murderers and criminals and the like can't be sympathetic. Theoretically, we should not sympathize with John Elman. Mm-hmm. The second is, unless we're taking place in, like, a time period before police were invented, we're not supposed to have revenge stories. And this movie, I don't know if you noticed it, but, like, this movie also skirts around the you-can't-question-authority thing in a few places. Like, the only judge we do see is an upright judge who will do his duty no matter what, but, like, the implication is that all the other judges in this city are crooked. Yeah. We just never really are told or shown that, right? There's there's a lot here that's sort of between the lines. And in cases where both the judge and even Jimmy mm-hmm. are, like, encouraged to not come forward with the truth, to not be the upstanding judge, is when it's um, their female significant other being like, no, like, please, I, I worry about you, and, like, making it sympathetic to not be an upright person, mm-hmm. right? Like, with the judge white, judge's wife saying, like, yes, you have a duty to the state, but you also have a duty to me and your children to keep us safe. Yeah. The third thing uh, that this movie does that you normally aren't supposed to do in a code movie is uh, break the laws of, like, nature, right? Because they bring him back from the dead. And back from the dead in a very, you know, you said it's evocative of Frankenstein. You can't help but think of Frankenstein, but it's different than Frankenstein because Frankenstein's monster at the end of the day is a bunch of different pieces from different corpses sewn up together and like a different brain taken from the wrong jar and thrown in there. So he's not like a person brought back to life. He's it, for all intents and purposes... He's like a new being. Exactly, exactly. Whereas this is, no, he was dead, and now he's alive again. And the way they get around all of this is that the murderer of these bad guys, the impetus of revenge here, the, the instrument of their punishment, and the force uh, allowing for the laws of nature to be broken, is God. Yeah, totally. It's very heavily implied that it's not necessarily Dr. Bowman's mad science that brought Elman back to life. Um, There's a strong implication that God has brought him back as some kind of avenging angel of death so that these guys can be punished. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, Elman's not even the one who does the killing. He kind of swoops in and his presence is enough to drive these guys to just sort of die through a lot of bizarrely accidental means. (laughs) Um, There's the fact that Elman can't remember anything about being dead, and Beaumont really wants to know. And, you know, as you said, he seems to be in a trance when he goes after these guys, and every single time they show a moment after the person's dead where Elman looks around like as if he doesn't know where he is or how he got there. And, you know, he knows where to find these guys. He knows who he's after. He has all this knowledge that he really, he shouldn't have. Even if he could remember his life before his death, he wouldn't have this information. So the implication really is that, like, the Lord is acting through him, basically, and and sending him out on these missions. And then, you know, the Holy Spirit or whatever leaves him, and he's just kind of left there, just the dude again. And then... There's the fact that that whole thing about the bullet hitting the back of his head and getting rid of the blood clot, like, makes no sense. Because he's shot from the front and clearly, like, shot in the gut. Like, how did a bullet, like, ricochet around to strike <laughs> the back of his skull? Yeah. And yeah. Even, even Beaumont's hypothesis that the blood clot is causing his memory loss, 
like we see in some scenes he can remember things just fine. So, you know, and then significantly he dies once the mission is completed, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, like God sent him back down to do this thing, and once it's done, he's he's taken him back, right? And I think the there's a lot of evidence that this is the case. There's uh, lights shining on um, on Elman's face when he is brought back to life, when he dies, whatever. But I think narrative-wise or dialogue-wise, mm. um, the biggest justification for this uh, interpretation is as Elman's walking to the chair, he has a line that's like, he'll believe I'm innocent. Like, yeah, he'll yeah, believe yeah, he looks up at the chair and says, he'll believe I'm innocent because no one else has yet. Yeah, and so to me that's like, yeah, God knows you're innocent, and in fact he's going to use you to get revenge. Who can do, like, murder and revenge in a code movie and still be sympathetic? Well, of course it's God. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, it's a very clever way. And and because of this, because we're, you know, one of the things the code says is like, oh, if you do wrong, you have to be punished. So because the victims of the horror in this movie are the bad guys and they need to be punished, we can actually show that punishment and show the horror of that. It's a really similar trick to a comic book character that I don't know if maybe you know or not. Uh, the Spectre? Yeah. The DC character? Yeah. Yeah, so the Spectre's uh, created by Jerry Siegel, the same guy who created Superman. And that's the whole shtick with the Spectre, is he's the angel of death that God sends down to, like, kill criminals. So in the comic books, even after the comics code came around, they could have the Spectre really brutally killing people and it was fine because it's god <laughs> yeah i'm not sure why they decided to go with karloff starring in this i think there's a lot of very valid reasons why they chose him the fact that he was frankenstein's monster and has yeah. experience playing like the dead brought back to life but i don't think that there's someone else that they could have chosen who would have been better in this role because karloff does such a good job of being the sympathetic guy. Mm -hmm. uh, the down on his luck, you know, two weeks out of prison, just wants a regular job, gets looped into, like, all you have to do is just watch this guy's house. That There's nothing illegal with that. And gets framed and set up and is just so, like, kind of heartbreaking. That sad, sympathetic nature that we'll see in Lon Chaney Jr. in The Wolfman. So, Karloff's great in this role. Definitely. But, like, it is worth saying, it's, it's very much in his wheelhouse. I mean, we've seen him do the down-on-his-luck criminal looking for a chance to redeem himself shtick in The Raven when he was Bateman. Yeah. You know, we've seen him do... Bateman. Yes. We've seen him do the sympathetic monster bit a lot. Yeah. We've seen him do the, you know, brought back from the dead and he's you know, a lumbering thing out to kill you. Like, it's a lot of different parts of other roles he's done put together. What makes Karloff effective here is that he's so easily able to go from puppy dog Elman to menacing Elman, right? He can do that switch really easily. Yeah. The rest of the cast here is really good as well. Definitely. I mean, they all look like Bruce Tim could have drawn them. <laughs> They're... They're probably not the most versatile actors, maybe. But what makes them work here is they're each perfectly cast for the role they have to play here. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, I feel like in some ways, this is something that the studio system did that we don't see a lot of anymore. Which is developing actors where you're good for this kind of part. And actors really don't like that. You know, actors want to be seen as versatile, that they can do anything. Um, they want to be able to, you know, play any kind of part. They don't like being typecast, right? Whereas the studio system, I think, was really built around, you know, okay, I need someone to play the old man from the cemetery. Well, I got a guy, right? The pros and cons here is that in a modern movie, sometimes it can be a little hard to buy the characters as well when, like, you know, everyone's someone who could potentially be the lead actor in a different movie. 
right? But, like, now in this one, they're just a supporting actor. Whereas in a movie like this, you know, those guys playing the gangsters, none of them are going to be headlining another movie, but they're all perfect to be these gangsters, Mm -hmm. right? So this is Karloff's next movie after Invisible Ray, right? Yeah. In broad strokes... This movie's very similar to The Invisible Ray. I was thinking that, too, in the sense that, you know, certain number of people that you're hunting down, uh, and you're just kind of coming at them. Mm-hmm. But this one works so much better because of the way that they've framed things so they can get around the code. Yeah. You know? So they can actually, like, go there. Exactly. Whereas with Invisible Ray, it's like, yeah, he's he's... An insane radioactive man who's going after people who really, like, I dislike, but I don't think you're supposed to dislike them, and killing them off one by one, and we don't even get to see it, and the one time that we do get to see it, it's a handshake. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like, the structure's very similar. You know, they both have this long origin story. Karloff kind of comes back from the dead in both, and then he's got supernatural powers, and he hunts down these people. But you're totally right. Like, the thing that makes this effective... Like, like you said, is the fact that it can go for it. But also, for me, like, I complained so much about the backstory in yeah. The Invisible Ray. Like, the fact that I was saying, like, yeah, you don't need any of this. You could have started the movie way later down the story. The thing that makes The Walking Dead great is all that backstory is actually relevant to the plot. You know, you need to see those dominoes fall in this certain way for the rest of the story to work. And what's particularly appreciated by me is that that part of the movie before it turns horror is still interesting enough and entertaining enough to just watch on its own. You're not kind of sitting there waiting for the point to arrive. Yeah, totally. In fact, you're dreading it as the clock is ticking down Mm -hmm. and you know that, like, you know Elman's going to die. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like... Boris Karloff is the walking dead. He needs to die. But you're also just like, wait, don't, no, just stop talking. Go answer the phone. Wait. Yeah. Run and stop them. Like, at least for me, I'm I'm. Oh, no, I out. totally agree with you. It's so well done, the tension throughout that section. And, you know, if you showed this movie to someone and, and kind of didn't show them the opening credits, like... I think they would be perfectly engaged with this little crime drama, you know, and then it turns, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I, this is what Invisible Ray should have been. This is a much better movie. On top of the, the cast, which is good, honestly, for me, the real winner here is the, the crew. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, there is that one shot where you see the light, one of the pieces of equipment, its shadow on the wall. Yeah, it's accidentally. It's a, it's a flag shadow. Um, I'm just giving them a hard time. I, I totally agree that they're great. <laughs> movies movies are tough. No, but like the direction here is a huge part of what makes this movie work. Same with the lighting, the camera work, the sound, the music, uh, the set design. Yeah, with the use of mirrors in mm-hmm. this is so great. Yeah, all of them come through perfectly to depict this story that is set in the real world, but doesn't necessarily play by its rules. You know what I mean? Like, like this is a, a movie that, that is realistic and then knows when not to be. There's a moment you keep kind of alluding to where the gangsters are all in the audience at a little concert, basically, that Elman is playing piano at. And he'll, like, look at one of them and, like, a, they'll be underlit suddenly. Like, a, we'll see in the shot a light turn on from under them to light their face you know, and then he'll look at the next guy and the same thing will happen. And again, and there's no, you know, there's no realistic source of that light. It's a purely dramatic thing. And that's what makes this movie so enjoyable for me is it's not afraid to be dramatic. It's not afraid to give you moments that might be, you know, a little over the top, but are 100% effective moments. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just a real hoot. A real hoot. Yeah. So how does that translate into ranking? So I had a really hard time coming up with a range for this, Sarah, because I really like this movie. I know you do. But that doesn't necessarily make it a good horror movie. 
Like, this is, we, we rank things based on how effective we think they are as a horror film, not necessarily how good they are as just a straight movie, like... Entertainment value. Yeah, Black Panther would do poorly on this list, right? <laughs> like, and I, like, that's a good movie, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I have a really big range. My floor is number 26, which uh, is to say that the lowest I'd put this is below The Raven uh, and above the 1913 Student of Prague. That's sort of as low as I'll go. And, and part of the problem with this is judging this movie, which is kind of half horror and half crime drama, versus movies that are like all horror start to finish, right? Mm -hmm. The highest I'd put this is at number five, below Island of Lost Souls, and above The Black Cat. Okay. And part of my rationale for that is The Black Cat's a good movie, but it there's something about it when you watch it that feels jaggedy, like as if it it's made up of jigsaw puzzle pieces that don't quite fit together. Well, because it is. The editing that happened. Yeah. And the reshoots and all that. Exactly. Whereas, like, The Walking Dead, like, is what it is. Like, it works as, like, a, a, a unit of movie, you know? Sure. So, I really don't know at all how to narrow that down, and I was hoping you could help. I can definitely help. Um, when I started to look at ranking, I first looked at the two films Curtiz has done that are on this list. Oh, sure. And that would be Mystery of the Wax Museum and then Dr. X. And this movie's better than those. Yes. Those are good, fun movies. This movie's better than those. So then I started to think about the fact that this is punishment horror. Mm -hmm. We first came across that in Freaks. And Freaks also has that kind of feeling of, like, regular movie, and then, nope, it's a horror movie. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the regular movie part of Freaks is still not what everyone would call a regular movie, but I, I totally see your point. Yeah. Um, and then I was also thinking about the fact that The Ghoul mm -hmm. is ranked above Freaks. I feel like this movie's better than that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember how the ghoul got that high, but... You know, sometimes things just blur together. Yeah. And uh, you, you wake up one day and you wonder, why is the ghoul above freaks? <laughs> um, I, like, why is the ghoul above Student of Prague 26? I, I agree I with that ranking, but that's fine. I, anyways. Anyways. When looking at the higher range of the list, mm -hmm. the common denominator of a lot of those films is some element of social commentary. That's true. There's nothing like that in this film. Okay. I, yeah. I mean, sure. In the same way that, like, Bride of Frankenstein's horror is heteronormativity. You know, there's no... I suppose the, the thing about The Walking Dead's social commentary is it's a very conservative social commentary. Because... The Walking Dead is commenting on society, but what it's commenting on is saying society's corrupt and there are these criminals who, like, even the law can't go after because of the way they've gamed the system and, like, that's super unfair and ultimately, like, the only force that has the ability to judge people and, you know, enact true justice is the Lord thy God, who is a jealous God. Like, I think, I think there's a, a social commentary here we just don't quite recognize it because it's a very conservative social commentary that is sort of defending traditional moral values rather than questioning them. But isn't, doesn't that make it a little bit of a tame horror movie? I can leave the theater and be like, well, I'm not going to frame anyone for murder, so I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, for sure, totally. I think, I think it plays differently depending on who you are as an audience member. Like, if you were... An actual gangster. No, I mean, like, if you were a um, a person who lived in a very crime-ridden city and you lived a life where you sort of feared for your environment because of people like this, this movie would have... 
you know, not it wouldn't send you questioning yourself, but I think you'd have a, a very visceral reaction to it. That's fair. To kind of finish where my ranking ends, yeah. I would put this below Mad Love at 14, because to kind of go back to what you just said about a visceral reaction, Mad Love gives me a visceral reaction. For sure. So, like, obviously these rankings will not be unbiased. Case in point is just this. But all of the films that are kind of above Mad Love either gave that visceral reaction or had some kind of social commentary to make. Yeah, and I mean, definitely it's, it's you know, you're totally right. Ultimately, this is a ranking not just of what we think is effective as horror, but what we think is effective to us, you know? I mean, it's a totally objective list that is completely factually correct in all aspects, <laughs> but it is also, you know, still, it's just us doing it, right? So Yeah. Um, We're not looking for peer review, though you can offer it by submitting an appeal. Yes. But anyways, yeah, no, so my, my range is 14 to 20. I totally get that. I totally see that. And you know, you're right. Like, ultimately, I have a visceral reaction to this movie, but it's not a visceral fear reaction. It's a visceral, this is fucking dope reaction. Like, it's a visceral, like, yeah, Elman gonna get you reaction. So I totally see what you're saying. Is it better than The Phantom of the Opera, which is another movie that is super rad, not especially scary, maybe? Yeah, see, this is when it gets a little tough for me, because mm -hmm. that movie's great. Our episode on it is super great, um, if I do say so myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think I get a visceral reaction from Phantom, but it just kind of goes on for so long and in so many different directions that it kind of gets diluted a little bit. Whereas this, it's definitely that, like, yeah, you know? This movie's focused. That's one of the things I like about it. Yeah, that, thank you for putting into words what my ramblings were. Okay, I would be okay with putting this below Mad Love above Phantom of the Opera. Cool. We good with that? I'm happy with that. All right, entering the list at number 15, The Walking Dead from 1936. Directed by Michael Curtiz. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to other episodes, the aforementioned appeals box, where, again, you can submit appeals, give us an argument for why you think one of the films should be higher or lower or anything whatsoever. That's also where you can submit questions or concerns or anything of that sort. You're also free to email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. One of the ways that you can help support the show is by leaving us a rating or review on any one of those services or wherever else you may listen to the show. We're widely available on most podcast apps through our RSS feed. Another way you can help support the show is by telling a friend about us. Hey, Ben. Yes. I heard about this really awesome podcast that is about film history and horror movies. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. I'll send you the link. Ah, awesome. There you go. That's what you do for your friends. Yeah, it's super easy. Um, another way you can help support us is by going to patreon.com slash podcast and becoming a patron of the night. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help support the show. It helps us pay our hosting fees, and also goes towards us improving the quality and quantity of content we produce. $5 patrons get access to bonus audio from past episodes. This is deleted content. It might be extra analysis, or it might just be goof-em-ups. Goof-em-ups. Yeah, and at the $10 level, patrons get access to exclusive horror short stories once a month. There are two stories up currently. One is a piece of historical fiction about Richard the Lionheart. The other is a story about why bullying is bad. <laughs> what was kind of neat with you talking about this movie was you saying like, yeah, I think I really like horror that starts out normal and then has a twist. And like, that's what your short stories have been. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I, I, think I just I, found it interesting. I mean, that's, I think that's like my Dark Side Drive episodes are like that too. Yes. Yeah. 
one of them has a few more twists and turns. <laughs> than uh, just the one? No, there's, there's, they both, yeah, there, lots going on. Anyways, what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Governor, next week we're going across the pond to uh, see a British film. Uh, what are we watching? Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, isn't it? Isn't it, Governor? I don't have any of the songs memorized, so I can't just break into music. It's okay. This is uh, 40 years before the musical was written. So it's a non-musical version. It does star an actor named Todd Slaughter as Sweeney Todd, though. Good. Excellent. I, I need to know if that's his Christian name. We will find out, won't we? Uh, won't we? Find out, won't we? Bye. Bye. How do you do bye in a... In a boy. Next? Boy. That just sounds like I'm saying, oi, boy. Yeah, exactly. Take my order. That now you're in Boston. <laughs> See you next week, creatures of the night. <laughs> <laughs>